What was the point of the country? What was the purpose of the state? And imagine that we, you know, had set it up here, and it can be done, obviously we didn't do it tonight, but you know, we set it up on the screens here when you type some words on your phone and everybody gets to see beamed up the three or four words that you would have put up. Ask yourself for a moment, what are the three or four words that you would have put up as to what the purpose of the state was? Yes, refuge was part of it, but it was not the main thing. The main point of the state in the minds of those who came up with Zionism at the end of the 19th century and in the minds of those who founded the state in 1948, the main point of the state was to save the Jewish people. The purpose of Israel was nothing more or nothing less than breathing new life into a people that barely staggered out of the first half of the 20th century. There would be a revival of an ancient language called Hebrew that 70, 80 years before that, virtually nobody in the world spoke, and today 10 million people speak. There would be a revival of literature in Hebrew and in other languages that would be distinctly Jewish. The idea at its foremost was to create a new Jew. If the image of the Jew in the middle of the 20th century, as it had been for decades prior, was the image of this victim behind barbed wire, emaciated, in striped clothing, waiting to see generation after generation after generation what history would next do to the Jews. The purpose of the state was to create a new Jew who would take Jewish destiny into her own hands and to his own hands. The purpose of the state was to create a new Jew who would no longer be defenseless. The purpose of the state was to create a new Jew who would not wait to see what history had in store for her in him, but would actually seek to shape the future of the Jewish people. There was a lot to accomplish, and a tremendous amount, and we'll come back to this in a little bit, has been accomplished. So given everything that's been accomplished, and given the fact that Israel lived for 74 years without a constitution, how did we end up in a constitutional crisis? We don't have time tonight to go into the complexities of this particular coalition and why Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu brought in some far-right extremist parties which are very much to the taste of some people and very much not to the taste of other people. That's important, but it's just not for tonight. But what is this battle about judicial review? What is this battle about the political and legal authority of people appointed by the Attorney General to be Attorneys General in each of the sub-ministries? Why this whole issue of what's called the plausibility or reasonability clause that the courts have been using for so long? Why is Israel fighting about the judicial system all of a sudden? Now, of course, you can say this caused that, and there's always a kind of a domino effect. But if you want to zoom out, not to 30,000 feet, but to 60,000 feet, just be careful you don't bump into a balloon of some sort. <laughs> if you zoom out to 60,000 feet, why are Israelis now fighting about judicial power? Because the great irony of Israeli society is that everybody in Israel is part of a minority. Everybody is part of a minority. Secular Jews account now for, I mean, pure old-fashioned USDA choice, secular Jews account for something like 18, 20% of the country. The ultra-Orthodox, the Haredim account for something like 10, 15%. The modern Orthodox, the religious account for something like 10, 15, 20%. The Mizrahim, the Jews from the Levant, who are now the majority of 
Jews in Israel. The majority of Jews in Israel are no longer of European descent, but they are from North African, Yemenite, Iraqi, Iranian descent, and so forth. They're the largest group, but they're also still a minority in Israel. The Arabs are a minority in Israel. The Ethiopians are a minority in Israel. Israel is a country in which there literally is no majority. And everybody is always wondering about how they are going to protect the place that they have earned for themselves in society, or how are they actually going to increase, if it's coming to them like the Ethiopians and the Arabs and all sorts of other groups, how are they going to increase their share of the pie, so to speak. And in addition to everybody sort of jockeying for space inside the middle of Israeli society, socially, politically, and legally, which brings us to the judicial crisis. Another thing that's happened, which explains the rise of the right, and in, in, in certain ways, even the rise of the far right, is that the minority that founded the Jewish state, which was then, of course, majority, the European, Ashkenazi, secular Jews, David Ben-Gurion and that whole crowd and Golda Meir who was actually European even though she came from Milwaukee, she came to Milwaukee from Eastern Europe and so forth. That whole crowd of European secular Jews, which in 1948 or 49 in the first election uh, got 46 seats in the Knesset, that party in this last election got four seats. Israel's founding party is breathing its last gasps. And in that first election in 1949, Menachem Begin, who was the head of the opposition in a party called Cheirut, which would eventually morph and become Likud, got 14 votes. In this last election, it got 32, with Benjamin Netanyahu at the helm. What Israel is experiencing is a huge tectonic shift, where the ideologies that gave birth to the country are running out of steam, and ideologies that were once marginal and peripheral are moving closer into the center. And in the midst of all of this jockeying, the question becomes, what happens to the old elites? What happens to people that now want to become the new elite? And obviously, just like in America, the courts are a place where a lot of that gets worked out, which leads us to the whole judicial reform. Now, we obviously don't have time tonight to go into all of the various details of what exactly is being proposed about judicial review and what's being proposed for the Office of the Attorney General and what's being proposed for all sorts of things. That's way too complicated for tonight. Suffice it to say that if you are in favor of the reform, you are entirely wrong. And if you are against the reform, you are entirely wrong. The reality is that Israel does need judicial reform. And at the same time, the reforms that are being proposed, most people would say, every single jurisprudential scholar in Israel and the vast majority of economists in Israel would say, simply go too far, too fast. How this plays out, it's really impossible to know. Is Prime Minister Netanyahu's government going to survive? Impossible to know. Is he going to jettison the parties on the far right and make a deal with some of the parties in the middle, like Gantz and Lapid and Lieberman, which would ironically actually boost his coalition from 64 seats to 74 seats? Will he do that? Would they join him? All impossible to know. But what we do know is that something very important and very powerful is happening in Israel at exactly the same time. If you read, or whatever you read, the Forward, the Times of Israel, Haaretz, Jerusalem Post, whatever source you read for Israeli news, the headlines are basically all about this huge cataclysm. And the headlines are actually, some of them, predicting dire consequences if those reforms go through. Just today, President Herzog, just today, 
President Herzog, who has this job, which is supposed to be a really boring job. You know, the president in Israel is a kind of an honorific figure. It's not honorific this time. If Isaac Herzog thought he was getting a relatively comfortable and laudable but not very busy position, uh, he was in, obviously, for a very rude surprise. And he's doing everything that he possibly can to try to bring the parties together to have a serious conversation, perhaps to compromise, to engage the country in a serious deliberation over what judicial review should look like, and so on and so forth. Now, as of today, earlier today, the government said, and Yariv Levin, who is the Minister of Justice, said, I'm not slowing down, I'm not stopping for anybody, I'm pushing this through. Whether that's just, you know, a lot of hot air or whether he really intends it is not entirely clear. Whether Bibi Netanyahu, who is risk-averse, and I say that in a very positive way, uh, is going to let it go through is not clear. What kind of pressure is being brought from other governments? We know that the Biden administration is not happy with the judicial review idea. We know that France is unhappy with the judicial review idea. How all of that is going to play out, we actually don't know. But in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of the dire headlines, Israel's headed for a cataclysmic break, Israel's headed for possible violence, Israel's headed for this and all that, and there is really reason to worry. Something extraordinary is happening on the streets of Israel. Every Saturday night in Tel Aviv, depending on the weather, and two weeks ago, a little bit less because of a terrorist attack on Friday night, Every Saturday night in Tel Aviv, and to a lesser extent in Haifa and in, Beit Shema, in Be'er Sheva and in Jerusalem, tens and tens of thousands of people, young and old, religious and secular, natives and immigrants, are pouring into the streets, in this particular case, to protest against the judicial review. But if you ask yourself, who are the people who are protesting in Tel Aviv? They're the techies. They're the ones at the heart of the economic engine. They're the ones that go to work in those tall steel and glass towers and get back into the garage underneath and take their luxury cars and drive back to Ramat Aviv Gimel or some of those other very luxurious suburban areas outside Tel Aviv. People who for a long time pretended as if they were living in a Hebrew-speaking European country. They lived in Tel Aviv the way they would have lived in Brussels or France or London or anywhere else. And what's happened all of a sudden, when they perceive something about the fundamental fabric of their country being at risk, they have been reminded how much they care. They have been reminded how much, even though they've been busy coding and going public and having exits and all of that, how much the enterprise called the Jewish state actually means to them. And so in the midst of all of the worry and in the midst of some genuine panic, which some of which actually may be quite legitimate, I think it's actually also very important to point to the renewal of a sense of love, a renewal of a sense of passionate devotion, a renewal of a sense of deep commitment to this enterprise called the Jewish state, deep commitment to this enterprise of something that was founded for the fundamental purpose of saving the Jewish people. Now, in many ways, and we'll come back to this, the Jewish people has been saved. Part of the problem that Israel faces, especially in the United States, but in Israel itself as well, is that it has been so overwhelmingly successful that young people today cannot begin to imagine the reality that Israel was meant to change. They can't imagine the idea 
that Jews were victims. They can read about it in the history books, but it feels like ancient history. It was, of course, within the lifetime of some of the people in this room. But for young people today, that feels like ancient history. And don't do it now, but check me later. If you go between now and the beginning of the Holocaust, it's about half as far back as the American Civil War. Meaning that for them, it's just, they can't imagine a world without Israel. They can't imagine a world in which Jews have no place to go. They can't imagine a world in which, in the 1940s, when a ship called the Struma set sail from Romania to Palestine but got stuck in the Bosphorus and got towed into Istanbul's harbor, and the United States begged England, which then of course controlled Palestine, to let that one boat, even though England had declared, Great Britain had declared an absolute moratorium on Jewish immigration, the United States begged England to let that one boat, that was a barge, a cattle barge basically, that had about 800 Jews on it, four or five toilets, one sink, hardly any food. The United States said to the British, one ship, let the one ship in. And the response of the British was, we don't need any more surplus Jews. Surplus. Human beings that we just don't need. Human beings that we just don't want. Human beings that literally, in 1942, 1943, 1944, 1945, had nowhere to go. The shores of this country were sealed. Ships were turned away. You know the story of the St. Louis. People who set sail from Germany made their way to Cuba, made their way up the coast, past the east coast of Florida, partially up the Atlantic, and were told by Washington, it's not happening. And about a third of those people who had set sail from Germany ended up getting taken on that same ship back to Europe and going up chimneys. The shores of this country were sealed, the shores of Canada were sealed, the shores of Palestine were sealed by the British. Europe was aflame. Australia was much too far to get to for the vast majority of people. It was almost impossible back then, it became easier later, but during the war it was almost impossible to get to South America. There were simply surplus Jews. Jews that nobody wanted. Jews that nobody would take. Jews who literally on planet Earth had nowhere to go. So they stayed in Europe and they died. Young people today cannot imagine a world like that. Even though, as I said, it was in the lifetime of some of the people in this room. Young people today cannot imagine a world in which Jews cannot defend themselves. The idea that within a generation, the world would actually, Israel would be exporting culture, that Israeli authors would be contenders for the Nobel Prize, that Israeli authors would win the Man Booker International Literature Prize time and again. The idea that people would win these prizes time and again and be nominated for others time and again seemed virtually impossible. But now there are no surplus Jews. Now there are no Jews who have no place to go. Now there is an international hunger for Jewish and Israeli culture. Now there is, a, it seems as natural as the rising of the sun, that Jews can defend themselves. That's what the Jewish state has wrought. 
And so if we're going to think about 1948 and remember that constitution that never got written, and we're going to think about 2023 in January, February, when we're in the midst of a judicial constitutional crisis, and it's a real crisis, we also have to think about May 14th, 2023. Israel is about to celebrate its 75th anniversary. And I think we do ourselves and we do the Jewish state and we do the Jewish people a tremendous disservice if we allow the complexity and even the pain of what is unfolding in Israel today, and a lot of it is painful, when the number one lead pilot, a national hero, the number one of the eight pilots who dove in June 1981 into Osirak to destroy the Iraqi, the Iraqi nuclear reactor, writes on Facebook, I don't know if it was last night or this morning, but writes on Facebook that Bibi Netanyahu should be killed, something's gone very wrong. And lest anybody want to say, by the way, that incitement comes only from the right in Israeli politics, that's unfortunately not true. Incitement comes from all over the map. So there was plenty to be worried about. There's plenty to feel pain about. There's even plenty to be ashamed of. But Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israel Independence Day, the 75th anniversary of the creation of the State of Israel, is really just around the corner. And that's what we really need to think about. This crisis, I believe, and I hope not naively, will pass. I believe, and I hope not naively, that compromise will take place. I believe and I hope not naively that because Bibi Netanyahu is so risk-averse, he's not going to allow it to be pushed through. I hope I'm not wrong. Could be wrong, but I hope that at least we're going to avoid this. But when we do, or if we do, or however long it takes, I think that we have to remember exactly what's been accomplished here. And if we allow the 75th anniversary to come while we're all stuck in the morass of this latest crisis, we're going to miss having a huge opportunity to recognize what we've done. So what have we done? There are no longer Jews defenseless. The rebirth of Hebrew and Jewish culture in ways that are just simply astounding. The thousands of plays and shows and books that get performed and produced and written and published every year in Israel in a tiny country of 10 million people, 8 million of whom approximately are Jews. Jews restored to the stage of history. No more homeless Jews. A whole society with Judaism, its calendar, its language, its concepts, its books, etc., etc., all at the core. You don't even know anymore what a Jew looks like. Because before there was Israel, everybody in America who knew Jews thought they knew more or less what Jews looked like. They looked more or less like me and you. But once the Jews from the Levant came, and once the Jews from Ethiopia came, and Jews started coming from all over the world, Israel has made us recognize that you don't even know what a Jew looks like anymore because we are so, more far, so far more complex and nuanced than we could ever have imagined. So it's hard to know how this is going to play out, but I want to go back to that day in 1948. On May 12, 1948, when... The assembly, the 10 people, it's actually 12, but only 10 were present at the meeting, turned to Yigal Yadin and said to him, if we declare independence, are we going to survive? He eventually became a great archaeologist, as many of you know, but was back then the commander of the military forces. And he said, I don't know. 
50-50. When they decided, and they voted six to four, which means, by the way, it could not have been closer. It's as close as the vote could possibly have been and passed. Even the people that founded the state were afraid to found the state. If we had said to them on that day, take them in and out. Take them in and out from worrying about the war and worrying about whether there's going to be enough Jews and wondering about whether Truman's going to recognize Israel, wondering about the UN and wonder. Take a minute and imagine 2023. What do you think's going to be here then? Or what would they have said in the 1950s when food was being rationed? And I don't mean that Merlot and caviar weren't available aplenty. I mean that people ate sardines and waited for allotments of sugar and flour with little tickets that you used to have to give in in order to be able to buy food. When the Fedayeen, who were these Arab warriors that came in mostly from Jordan, crossed in the 1950s, get this number, tens of thousands of times every year. It's only 365 days. Tens of thousands of border crossings a year. What would they have imagined for 2023? When war in 1967 and war in 1973 meant that it looked like Israel was really going to be crushed, what would they have imagined for 2023? When inflation in the 1980s was 400% a year, what would they have imagined for 2023? When an era which the idea that an Arab country would make peace with the Jewish state seemed ludicrous, could they have imagined 2023, Egypt in 78, 79, Jordan in 94, Bahrain, UAE during the Abraham Accords, followed by Morocco, Sudan, Saudi Arabia in the on-deck circle, could they have imagined any of that? They couldn't. They couldn't have imagined a world in which Israel was a country that the Arab world wanted to be in relationship with. They couldn't have imagined the world in which food in Israel would be so plentiful that it became literally a foodie country. They couldn't have imagined a world in which, in Israel at least, we never talk about the conflict, ever. We know it's there. We know it's sad. We know that there are millions of people whose lives need to be better, and we just don't know how to make that happen yet. But on a day-to-day -day basis, nobody talks about it. Because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of young kids out there who keep us safe. When I was 18 and 19 years old and in college in New York, my parents really took care of me. And I like to pretend that they didn't, but I knew that they did. My parents were taking care of me. And when our kids in Israel were 18 and 19 years old, they were literally protecting us. What would those people have said on May 12, 1948, when they got together to vote? Whatever they would have imagined for 2023, it would have been nothing like what we have. That's what we have to talk about. We've got to stop talking about the conflict as if it's the major issue. It's important. It's painful. There are human beings whose lives are at stake. It's all true. But it's not the major story. 
The, the rabbinate's treatment of non-Orthodox Jews is, to my mind, reprehensible. But it's not the major story. Iran is worrisome. But it's not the major story. The story is that the Jewish people has been reborn. The story is that the Jewish people has been reborn in this incredible community, in this incredible city, in large measure because of the inspiration that comes from the Jewish state across the ocean. The story is that those people who voted six to four on May 12, 1948, did something that was more successful than they could possibly have imagined that they were doing. That is the story we need to tell ourselves. That's the story we need to tell our children and our grandchildren and our neighbors and our co-workers and our politicians because it's true. Because it's the essence of what Israel is. The essence of Israel is not the conflict, and the essence of Israel is not the treatment of non-Orthodox Jews, as, as I said, as reprehensible as it is. And the, the essence of Israel is not Iran, and the essence of Israel is the rebirth of the Jewish people, the revival of the Jewish people, the recreation of a thriving Jewish people in its own land, speaking its own language, living according to its own calendar, producing its own great works of literature, and celebrating thousands of years of Jewish tradition. That is the story that we have to tell. Nobody wants to join a parade which is about nuclear Armageddon. Nobody wants to join a parade which is about occupation. Nobody wants to join a parade which is about a rabbinate which does not comport itself as we wish it would. But that's the wrong parade. The parade is a country that has been successful beyond anything that those 10 men, and yes, it was men back then, beyond anything that those 10 men could have imagined on May 2nd, May 12th, excuse me, 1948. We have to learn to tell a different story. We have to be worthy of the fact that we are living to see the 75th anniversary of the State of Israel. What we need to do is not to worry and to complain, but to celebrate and to give thanks. We need to weep, but with joy, not only with sadness. We dare not be satisfied or unconcerned, but we have to marvel at everything that's been created. And we have to thank those who came before us. People who gave their lives, people who showed extraordinary temerity and courage to vote, albeit six to four, to say yes. We choose life. We choose rebirth. We choose to leave the horrors of the middle of the 20th century and everything that came before it in the past, never to forget, but not to allow it to define us. We choose to create a new Jewish future. And the responsibility that we all have, whether we live here in this extraordinary community or whether we live where I live in Jerusalem or anywhere in between or beyond, all of us have an obligation, it seems to me, to recognize the extraordinary nature of what's been created even in the midst of all of what's going on right now. And to make sure that we do everything we possibly can to guarantee to whatever extent possible that the greatest days of the Jewish state and the greatest days of the Jewish people lie not in the past, but in a glorious future that we too can scarcely imagine.